Before we get into today's episode, I wanted to take a quick minute to talk about one of the sponsors of this podcast. I had a lot of different supplement companies approach me wanting to sponsor the show. I wanted to pick a company that produces products that I would personally use and would genuinely recommend to my clients. Needtobuildmuscle.com makes hardcore products designed for the serious athlete. They produce a wide variety of different products such as nutrient partitioners, liver aids, fat burners, post-cycle therapy products. You can use the code TREVOR10 to save 10% off your entire order. Support them and you support the podcast. Now on to our episode. This is Evolutionary Radio. This is your host, Trevor Kuritz. And as always, my co-host, Steve Smee, is joining me. What's up, guys? Good evening. You guys notice it's starting to get darker early. We're almost to the end of summer, thankfully. How's it going? And we have our new, another guest. How's it going, well, buddy? Before, before we get into that, it snowed last week in Winnipeg. <laughs> Hockey season's almost here. They're ready, playing the, they're ready playing the preseason. Yeah. But anyways, joining us today is a really good guest. It's someone you might not have heard about before, but he's an absolute wealth of knowledge. Joining us today is Scott Mendelson, founder of Infinity Fitness. Scott, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Scott, so because most of our listeners probably never heard of you before, give us your background. How did this all start for you? What got you interested in weight training? What got you interested in nutrition in the first place? I was interested in weight training to prepare for sports, and I knew going from high school sports to college sports were a real high in terms of what not to do. Um, I had a very poor experience uh, in college with a coach that eventually, you know, was out of the industry because he injured a lot of people, including me. So I thought there's got to be a better way to and sought out a lot of information from other experts and built up my own knowledge of time and started infinityfitness.com in 1999. So I'll be in business 20 years come this November and primarily my attention has been focused to helping clients with personalized programs to uh, improve my function, performance, rates of recovery, and you know many other things, working with a range from professional athletes to executives, everything in between. And I have a lot of interaction with clients on a daily basis. And I work with Dr. Eric Serrano, MD, uh, who's nearby here in Columbus, Ohio. And I'm lucky to be part of a lot of different trials and experimentation and learning from the things that he's doing in his office, which uh, is interesting more. So what exactly is Infinity Fitness? Is that a physical personal training studio? Or do you work with clients online? What exactly is this? InfinityFitness.com is, is the website, you know, we started in 1999. And uh, I'm proud of what we've done in terms of content with our video logs, things of that nature, built up a lot of content over time. So it's become a place for a lot of people all the way down from the end user to many other trainers and strength coaches go to, you know, watch videos that Dr. Sharano and I do on a regular basis. But no, uh, I don't operate as a gym. I need clients in certain situations when I'm traveling, some of them come to see me. But the, you know, 40 or 50 hours a week of meeting people in the gym and doing the hour-by-hour personal training is, is something I haven't done for a long time. So Steve and myself are going to shut up for most of this episode because you're way smarter than both of us. we got four really good topics we want to discuss. The first topic is going to be the low testosterone epidemics. This is something me and you were talking about a little bit off air. And the average testosterone levels of a man have been declining 1% since the 1950s. So, I mean, this is obviously a huge ordeal. There's a lot of factors at play. Scott, what is your opinion on why men now as young as 20 are being diagnosed with low testosterone? 
terrible diet and lifestyle. The uh, food supply is not as nutrient dense as it once was. A lot of people are eating uh, junk foods that are screwing up the hormonal profile. They're getting a lot of environmental estrogens. I mean, a combination of a lot of things. I think you could also look at that young people are not exercising as much as many school systems are cutting back. Uh, physical education, at least in the U.S., uh, I don't have a statistic on that, but I know when budgets are cut, they cut out gym class, which makes no sense to me. Um, I think participation in sports in some areas of the country are lower, uh, while some areas are much higher, and you have a lot of kids participating in nothing. They don't get activity, um, and they start to become deconditioned, and perhaps that's attributing to you know, low testosterone and age, you know, as early as 20. But I'm going to say the diet and lifestyle are the main things. Um, you see a lot of teenagers now using recreational drugs. And, you know, because some asshole on Instagram says it's good to smoke marijuana, it uh, uh, can increase estrogen levels. Um, it does not have a good impact on the hormonal profile. Um, you know, I'm sure that there are many medicinal reasons to use, you know, marijuana, for example, but that's not the case for, you know, those teenagers who are doing that. Uh, alcohol abuse is another issue that I think uh, messes with the uh, testosterone and cortisol ratio. And then the other perspective uh, for men as they get older and women, the stress level on average has climbed significantly. Financial stress, emotional stress, work stress, and that further damages the hormonal profile. So bad fuel sources, bad environment, lack of proper activity, uh, drug abuse, uh, maybe certain prescription drugs can contribute to low Well, that particular area in terms of prescription, I would refer to Dr. Serrano for his expertise on that. But all of these things can, can play a factor in what's going on with low testosterone. Do you think, do you think too, it could be technology in terms of um, like video game use, social media, like it just seems like, you know, we can't get away from our phones and the younger generation, especially they're like addicted to this shit and they have like, they've developed this ADHD, like this addiction to porn, the addiction to video games. Uh, I tried to get my nephew to go to a football game and sit for three hours. And I got halftime. He's like, I'm bored. I want to go home. I tried to take him fishing and he's like, I'm having fun. 15 minutes later, he's like, I'm bored. I want I'm, I want to leave. It's just like this, they get, their brain is, is functioning so differently. Don't, do you think that that may have a effect on the way their, their body is operating as well? It's possible they're getting less activity than what, you know, a, a kid should, in my estimation. They're playing with their phones, they're playing on video games to where maybe 20 years ago they were playing outside with their friends. Um, I think also one of the issues is a societal attitude. Um, it's hard being a macho kid. Um, there are some educators perhaps or some other people in the community that tell kids don't be aggressive, you know, everything's a trophy, you know, and whether you're in 19th place or whatever. So perhaps when some kids are less competitive, there's less drive to achieve, uh, they're not as motivated, and maybe that impacts testosterone as well as that age. But certainly the electronic um, excuses people have that are tied up with that is not helping, that's for sure.
Scott, give our listeners some mitigation steps. So if someone listening to this podcast is suffering from low testosterone, obviously there's the obvious things like if they're smoking pot to stop doing that, if they're drinking, they cut that back. But when you say diet, how should they improve their diet? Because the problem is a lot of people are very clueless on like what they should actually be doing. Dietary fat intake from the right sources is very important for So shift that to a diet with more organic dietary fat sources uh, from organic protein sources. You know, uh, steak comes to mind as a good one. Extra virgin olive oil, nuts, avocados, things of this nature. Good dietary fats help to support natural testosterone production. And as you shift up dietary fats, decrease the carbohydrates from sugars and refined foods. The body responds very well to that. And protein sources, whenever possible, organic is really ideal. And what you have to understand is that organic protein sources, if you have a cow that is given estrogen to make it fat because it's going to sell for more at auction, well, the residual estrogen is going to be in that meat that you're consuming. How much? Don't know. It's done regionally or through different cattle ranchers. I have no idea. I do know the meat that I get, for example, that I buy at the store or that I, you know, uh, online is grass fed, does not have any antibiotics or uh, estrogens, both things put in there because I don't want any of that stuff. So the organic grass fed rate or grass fed beef is excellent. I think it's a good dietary fats and protein is good for testosterone. So again, the diet shift from the good dietary fats and proteins and eliminating the refined carbohydrate, I think has a good effect on hormonal profile for men to naturally optimize testosterone you spoke about beef does the same rule apply to chicken which should you buy organic free-range chickens i'm sorry what you spoke about beef does the same rule apply to chickens should you buy organic free-range chicken i think that chicken is a good idea wild caught fish absolutely i'm not aware of chickens getting estrogen um, but some of them end up fatter than they are i mean some uh, chickens that are in the middle or commercially raised are so fat that they're breaking the chicken's legs very early on in their life. You know, they're weighing a lot more than they should. So is their composition of, you know, of fat higher or than it should be? I don't know off the top of my head, but cage-free, you know, chicken, cages are very good. Um, and wild caught fish and seafood are much better than, you know, farm-raised options as well. So the closer you can get to nature, on, on foods, probably the better off you're going to be in all regards. Could you give our listeners an example of like a healthy testosterone boosting breakfast, lunch, and dinner? You don't have to like yeah. list the quantities, but just like food items. Breakfast could be, let's say, for a 200 pound man, you know, four uh, whole cage free eggs cooked with grass fed butter, you know, and add some vegetables like some peppers and onions in there. Uh, with a side of uh, organic pork or grass-fed beef, maybe. and if that person is also trying to, you know, gain some lean body mass, I might add some, you know, fruits at that time as well, uh, from let's say strawberries or berries, things of that nature. Uh, lunch, uh, a large salad with avocado and um, grass-fed grass-fed burger patties. Let's say three or four of those. Um, add a dressing that has extra virgin olive oil, apple cider vinegar, spices. Most salad dressings, unfortunately, have soybean oil, and you want to avoid that. I mean, 
beans is what they give pigs to make them fat, if that gives you any idea of what that's for. So you want to avoid soybean oil. You want to avoid canola oil. So a lot of the dressings, you got to be careful. They have that stuff in there. So just, you know, make your own. And uh, for dinner, it could be, um, you know, wild-caught salmon with uh, extra virgin olive oil and some more vegetables. So that's stuff that comes to mind. Good snacks are... Uh, nuts, uh, ones again that don't have added oils, and macadamias, cashews, almonds, uh, walnuts, pecans, things of that nature. Tell clients to rotate them. There's another topic we talked about food allergies. And eating the same thing over and over again, 100% of the time, is going to cause food allergies and irritations and tolerances. And uh, those are necessarily detected by a skin test, but more so by blood tests, like Dr. Sharona does in his office very often. Uh, and you can see somebody eating almonds every day for years on end, it's going to come up in their test highly reactive and something they need to cycle off for. It, it's, it's amazing, you know, that diet you just listed because that's pretty much my diet. You know, it's whole foods. It's stuff that is, there's no, you know, ingredients in a nut, a whole, a raw nut. But if you get nuts in a package, it's going to have added oils like soybean oil, for example, hydrogen yep. oil, all that shit. Mm -hmm. If you go eat at a buffet at a restaurant or eat restaurant food, they're going to add canola oil. They're going to add preservatives. You know, it's not going to yep. be hormone free. But if you actually go and you buy organic or you catch your own fish, you know what you're eating. You know what you're putting in your body. And that's amazing. That's something that I've turned to, just a natural whole food diet. I will admit, though, that I will on occasion have like a donut or something very rarely, maybe once a month. That's my little treat. But, you know, for the most part, you want to stick to whole foods like you were saying. Let me ask you this, though, in terms of cooking, what is the best oil to use for cooking? Is it going to be your coconut oil? Is it going to be extra virgin olive oil? What is I'm not talking about like being a chef here. I'm talking about for health reasons. What should I be cooking with at home? Depends on the temperature. So if you have a uh, high temperature, you know, probably coconut oil would be more of what I would use. Grass-fed butter is the best if you're cooking things, in my opinion. Extra virgin olive oil is very good, but that's not good at high temperatures. That should be a medium to low temperature. Uh, Grapeseed oil, no, that one's terrible. Uh, obviously canola, no. So olive oil is good. Um, you know, I'm not quite the chef either, so I don't think cooking with vinegar at a high temperature is a good idea either. But, you know, coconut's very good, uh, grass-fed butter, those are things that I would lean on most often with clients. I, mean, I, will, I just want to make this note, too, with coconut oil. Be careful that you check the ingredients in the coconut oil because they do like to add, like, stuff to the coconut oil. And I can say with me, because I have IBS, you know, the coconut oil that most – is sold in the stores, they do have added garlic. So that actually will upset my stomach. So I make sure I get the pure coconut oil, make sure yeah. you look at the ingredients where it doesn't have any garlic. A lot of people are very sensitive to garlic and onions, and that's very, very hard to digest. Go ahead, Trevor. Well, I was gonna say, you heard it here first, keep the grapeseed oil for making your gear, and uh, for everything else, you wanna be using coconut oil for your cooking. So Scott, what are your thoughts on food sensitivity tests? You really hear people, they either love them or hate them. Do you think this is, do you think they have merit? I can tell you firsthand when I've done my own tests and when I've worked with patients in Dr. Serrano's office who prescribe blood tests for food allergies and when people follow them, 
results can be dramatic in many cases. Uh, so food allergies, irritations, and intolerances will group together into food allergies for the purposes of this conversation. They can happen when you're eating foods too often or you inherently can react poorly to certain foods. Looking at my own tests, and I just put out an article about this yesterday, last night, and posted my, my own test on, uh, on the article, and it gives you rankings and numbers and some of them appear in red. I've never eaten a haddock in my entire life. But it's one of the most reactive foods, so no problem, I'll avoid that. But there are several other things that I've eaten too often that are on there. I cycle them out of the diet and it helps me a lot. But there's other people that are impacted by all kinds of cognitive issues, uh, breathing problems, uh, rashes, joint pain, stomach upset, very severe problems when they eat certain foods. Until they get a blood test to kind of see what's going on, you don't know. You can take a journal and guess on a lot of things. But, you know, when you run a test and there's hundreds of foods, uh, you know, including spices, things, having that's very important. So the right test for the right situation, yes. When you talk about skin tests, they seem to be best protecting things that cause anaphylactic shock, which is important, right? You know, you for people that have those situations, don't mess around. Um, but those skin tests do not tell the whole story on, on allergies that may be less profound, you know, like when we're talking other foods causing the symptoms I just said. So, yes, I do think that food allergies testing in terms of blood testing by the right companies. Allotest is one that Dr. Sharani uses very often, uses others. That one has pretty very good outcomes for patients when they follow this is one of the reasons I don't love food sensitivity tests is because a food sensitivity is an IgG antibody. It's not an IgE antibody like a food allergy. So a food sensitivity is basically you eat this food, you're not totally allergic to it, but you have an IgG antibody, which basically your body goes like, hey, what is this foreign subject? And it's an autoimmune response. What I personally think might happen is like, I haven't eaten a Brazil nut in probably like two years. Not, I don't have anything against them. It's just they're not really readily available in Canada and I want to spend $20 on a couple ounces of nuts, right? So if I ate that and then did a food sensitivity test, I would think that my IgG antibody count would be high because my body would be like, whoa, what is this foreign food that we just ate that we've never seen before? But I might not necessarily have a food sensitivity to it if I continued eating it. What do you think about that? And again, this is just something I've thought about myself. I don't have any literature to back this up. I think eating anything too often, you're going to end up with some kind of poor reaction to it. So, you know, if you're eating Brazil nuts for every day for weeks on end, it's a matter of time until it becomes a problem. And, you know, the, when it starts to come in and become more of an irritant, the immune system has to kind of deal with it. It distracts the body from doing a lot of the things that you want it to do. You know, that's the way I would, I would look at it. Um, in terms of the different responses, it, it, it can vary across the map. There are some people that even a hint of like, let's say black pepper makes them go wild. They immediately start to have a response with overheating and breathing and things of that nature. So I can tell you, you can test a hundred people, they can all have different results and it, it could be more or less profound for, for different people. I don't know. But when there's been a background of problems that are hard to solve with traditional methods, and Dr. Serrano has done the food allergy testing and they've got the whole list and he says, all right, avoid this, 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 and they've done it. It's for very good outcomes. That I know. 
but it may not be necessary for every person. I think it's necessary for people that have some difficulties of different uh, varieties that need to be solved. That's the best way I can put it. I don't, I don't generally recommend it for clients. I have other things that I do with food rotations that help take care of those issues uh, before they become problems, even the same things all the time. I, I just want to say, it just, it's just fascinating to me how complicated people make food because what you're saying makes perfect sense because there's a reason watermelon you know, is harvested in the summer, but not in the winter. There's a reason oranges are harvested in the fall, not the spring. There's a reason that the mackerel run in the, in the, in the, in the fall and spring and not the winter or summer, you know, over time, human beings have always eaten food certain times a year and then not eaten food certain times a year. But now it's like, we want to eat the same thing every day. We're not cycling our foods. And it's like, historically, the way we evolved is we always cycled our food. So what you said earlier about eating the whole foods, the, the, the hormone-free foods, the natural foods, and then cycling your food, this, is, this isn't rocket science, people. This is the way we evolved to eat. And this is, it's in our DNA to eat like that. Every animal on earth that's wild eats just like this. And then when they're sick, they don't eat. You know, they fast. And that's something other thing that we don't do. Can you talk a little bit about fasting? Yeah. Well, so you made a good point. You know, foods were available in different seasons that you eat, and so naturally they would cycle out of the diet because they weren't available at a certain time. Well, something else we were meant to do is eat six times a day. You know, and this is one that drives doctors run on nuts. You have a bodybuilder comes in the office like six times a day. My stomach is killing me having all these problems. Well, two of the six meals are whey protein, which um, it's just a matter of time to the highly concentrated dairy ingredients screw up the digestive system because of the allergies, irritations, and intolerances. Then you pile on that. People eat too often. They start to deplete their digestive enzyme levels. The digestive system has to work too hard. And while somebody can get away with that, maybe in their 20s, when they start to cross over in their 30s, they're starting to have some big problems. And uh, that's something he sees very, very often. So we weren't meant to eat six times a day. Um, I think at the most, you know, four times a day may work, um, you know, and that wouldn't be all year round. So I do like fasting protocols. You know, what do you want to call it? I call it flexible fasting. Is there so many people hijacking intermittent fasting or this or that type of fasting? I gave up trying to keep track of all these people and all of their, you know, different agendas, but fasting protocols, uh, I think are smart. Uh, there's definitely a lot of evidence in the literature that would point to benefits it has with insulin sensitivity, helping the body detoxify, helping the lower body fat levels, uh, and, and many other things. So when you're fasting, it's kind of interesting. You people go on a fasting protocol while well, they're eating their allergens less often. So they're into like a 12 hour fast and all of a sudden feeling better. Well, part of the answer is they're not eating the yogurt they've been eating for 10 years, you know, first thing in the morning as their breakfast because the commercials tell them to do it. Um, and, uh, you know, you remove those things. So all of a sudden they're fat past breakfast and they feel better than usual. Well, part of it is they're not eating things that are irritating them. That's not rocket science, you know? Um, so I think that would be on the same wavelength as to what we discussed some common sense approaches. Scott, though, what would you do for a big professional bodybuilder? Let's say someone who weighs 250 pounds, 
with an extreme amount of muscle mass requires a huge caloric intake, how would they be able to get their calorie intake in just three or four meals a day? I think that if they shift a lot of their intake to dietary fats that are more calorie dense uh, and they're doing it four meals that they can still actually add weight. You know, I think part of it becomes too uh, using digestive signs to support digestion, you know, like the EZ14 that Dr. Schrano developed has been really good uh, for the past two months that it's been available in terms of helping people trying to gain the body mass, utilize more nutrients and fewer meals than what they were doing. War. You know, and there's some debate. Look, you know, I know if you were to ask a traditional bodybuilder, they think they need so many calories. Well, calories are one factor of many. The, the timing of the meals, the composition, the macronutrient percentages all play a role too. So if I get a bodybuilder that comes my way, in many cases, I'm changing a lot of factors. They're eating less, uh, but they're utilizing more nutrients. They're gaining muscle at a faster rate. Uh, perhaps losing body fat or being able to stay lean and have a higher energy level and overall quality of life. To me, that's a, a big achievement. Um, because eating six times a day is a harder thing to do. It takes a lot of time and effort and prep. But if you consolidate six meals to four and make the four meals you know, a little bit larger with some more dietary fat that are easier to get down and more calorically dense, you may not necessarily eat a lot less in terms of calories. I, I just want to say, I know... I don't believe in the whole calorie thing in the first place. Like, because, huh? It's one factor of many. And really, yeah, I mean, the quality it, well, it's like, I, I just like, in my history, this whole thing when I force myself to eat because I'm like obsessed over getting calories, because I'm obsessed over losing my muscle if I don't get calories, it, it doesn't work like that. I end up just getting fat. But when I just eat when I'm hungry and eat healthy foods, I get, I get all the muscle I want. So it's like I don't buy this whole you have to have this many calories if you're 250 pounds or your muscles will shrink away. And this whole calorie in, calorie thing out, I think is the most bastardized thing in existence. And we can thank diet coaches for that because diet coaches love sitting a person down and be like, okay, you're 250 pounds. Let me do the calculations. Yeah, you need this many calories a day to gain muscle. You need this many calories a day to lose fat. And it's like, it doesn't work. You know, like I don't see it working on me. I don't see it working. I actually, I have clients that come to me and they want me to map out their macros. I say, look, I don't do that. I don't map, map mm -hmm. out your macros. I don't care about your calories. I just care about meal timing, what you're putting in your body, you know, how often you're eating. That that's what I care about. Like like is this something that you believe in or are you kind of like on more uh, what Trevor's saying? I I don't assign specific numbers of calories to clients, you know, that's just one factor that's going to end up, you know, being an issue because they're so obsessed with calculating this and calculating that where the focus needs to be on the meal timing, the food combinations, um, you know, and the amounts, like the amounts that they're supposed to eat. But many of them are pleasantly surprised early on in the process that they can reduce their stress level by not recording every little thing or worrying about calories. And, you know, focusing on eating the right things, the right proportions and timing that yields a much better result. But you do have some people in this industry that believe it's a scientific equation for each person. And well, my response would be, how on earth do you calculate that each individual person is burning or needing on a given day, unless you're 
traveling with them to see what they're doing mentally, physically, and all that. I mean, that's just, you know, it's it's a traditional source of, of, of looking at things. And here's something that Dr. Sharano said at many conferences that really pisses people off. And he likes to piss people off. You know, you have a group of nutritionists, and he says to them, what, uh, what's, what's, what's the difference between 100 calories of Lucky Charm cereal and 100 calories of broccoli? They're, they're both carbohydrate, right? And some of the nutritionists say they're the same. And he says, you're an idiot. And they really <laughs> And he's like, if you're going to tell me that you went to school and you have an RD or whatever letters by your name, and you believe that 100 calories of broccoli is going to produce the same hormonal response as 100 calories of Lucky Charms, you are a complete and utter idiot. And some of them get up and leave, but more of them stay and listen because, like, maybe this guy's on to something, not because necessarily he's an MD and he outranks them, but from the practical experience he has helping a lot of people and producing great outcomes. So um, calories are one factor of many. They're not the overriding factor of success in, uh, in my mind. There's many other things that, uh, that have a, a greater impact on the bottom line result. Steve, just for the record, I think calories matter, but like Scott said, calories, calories are just a small piece of the puzzle. I mean, I think knowing your calories, knowing your macronutrients are important because then you have a general idea of, okay, I'm eating roughly 40% fat, 40% carbs, 20% protein, or whatever, so you can make adjustments. But the calorie nutrition on food labels has a 20% error. And I mean, every day you're going to be slightly wow. more active or less active. So I mean, like, it's one of those things you have to take as a grain of salt and kind of take it as like a big picture approach. But I agree what those calories are made of is more important than the calories themselves. Because kind of like if someone's TDE is 2,500 calories, you need 2,000 calories of butter, on paper, they should lose body fat. But I mean, in a real world sense, they probably just look like crap. So I mean, what those calories are made of is actually more important than calories. But I do think knowing your calorie intake is just as a general idea is, is a good, is smart. Scott, talk to us about fat cell cleansing. We are all born with billions of fat cells. We can gain more by eating the wrong things, such as fried foods, food fried with corn oil, but we can't get rid of the ones we have. So many people throughout their adolescence or points of their life um, actually increase the size of their fat storage warehouse quite substantially, uh, substantially uh, by eating the wrong things, french fries, fried chicken, and a lot of other packaged goods, you know, as well. And when you have a larger amount of fat cells, then you're permanently left with a larger capacity to store body fat. And we can see that in the population with the rising obesity levels, even at very young ages. Uh, the other thing is trans fats, preferred were meant to extend shelf life. When they get into the fat cells, they screw up the function and make it more difficult for these cells to utilize stored fat as fuel. So fat cell cleansing is a term that Dr. Serrano and I came up with, you know, probably 15 years ago when trying to help people understand that regardless of caloric intake, right? If your fat cells are all screwed up and storing a lot of toxins, if they're not functioning well, you're going nowhere fast in terms of your ability to lower body fat. And you're also probably very toxic. He has a lot of female patients in particular that store toxins or store them from years ago. And we gotta do a lot to try and shift that balance for them to feel better um, on a general basis. So. The way we approach it is like many of the things we discussed tonight. 
increasing the uh, intake from good dietary fat sources, proteins, carbohydrates from the right source, the right timing. Uh, we also have the alpha mega which is an essential fatty acid complex that Dr. Sharon developed that this EPA and DHA that are uh, oxygen filtrated, that's fish oil, right? But there's also CLA, GLA, ALA, vitamin E, avocado oil, extra virgin olive oil, and flaxseed oil. And he came up with the ratios based on a lot of patient research, meaning what worked and what doesn't. And that's kind of what's interesting about him is he's a mad scientist trying all kinds of different things to see what works. But uh, also when you couple exercise in as well, you know, that has some detoxifying uh, benefits as well. So looking at the fat cell uh, status, we can improve that, we can accelerate your ability to lose body fat and also keep it low long term. Because when the cells have good fat composition in them, then they're less likely to spoil the garbage in the bloodstream. You know, when you do, you know, uh, make some choices that are far less than ideal. But one of the problems we have with people now that, you know, obesity is a term for, I guess, people have a high fat percentage. I would even take it to mega obesity, right? These people that are huge in terms of their body fat levels. And my intention is not to belittle them or make fun of them. But the people with the extremely high body fat levels, it's not a matter of just low activity, uh, eating more than what they need they have screwed up their fundamental ability to burn fat in many ways and uh, that the cells are positioned in a way that they constantly want to store more and more garbage because they don't know what to do. Fat cells communicate and when you send the wrong messages to the body like in many other regards, things get all screwed up is the way that I would put it. And now also talking about the obese or mega obese, these people did not get there overnight and expect something to work like this. And that's not the case. If you've done a lot of damage to yourself, it's gonna take some time to undo that. Um, and you have to be patient so that you can you know, drop body fat levels and get the cells you know, back in, in proper work. It's really interesting. What are your thoughts on things like sauna for detoxification? Yeah, I, I, I don't have a lot of experience with it, but there seems to be some evidence that it can work. Um, you know, how much does that help in the overall equation? I don't know. There's infrared saunas that, um, you know, I've had clients have done before and they found it to be good for, for a lot of reasons. I'm not against it. Uh, how much does it help in the overall equation? My, my, my estimate would be is that it's, it's, it's not as large as what's going to be done with the diet um, in terms of your ability to correct the fat cell function in itself. Um, that's my theory on that. I don't have data to support uh, that claim in particular, but diet impacts a lot of things. I and mean, that's how that is, you know, get in the right direction uh, and supplementation. You know, the alpha mega food is very, very good for that purpose. So what, what should someone who's obese, because let's face it, um, the last thing I saw in the United States said that the majority of people over 50% are at least 30% body fat. And I believe that, I mean, just go to Walmart and, and look around at, at, at people. So, um, or go to a football game or go anywhere where there's middle-aged men, everyone has a fucking gun. So what should, what should people do who are listening to this right now? And I'm the type of person, I don't blame the victim. I don't, if a fat person walks into my gym, 
I'm not one of those people that points at them and be like, it's your fault you're fat. Because it's not their fault that they're fat. It's the bullshit that you talked about at the beginning of this podcast that's out there. It's the advertisement. We, we, get, we see advertisements every day for pizza, Gatorade, sports drinks, right. sugar, um, Subway, all this shit. Every commercial, every other commercial is garbage food. And they try to tell us that that's healthy. They tell, try to tell us Subway is healthy, Gatorade is healthy, all this shit. So it's not their fault. So what can a fat person do right now to kind of turn their thing and it's in, and is there a book they should be getting? Is it something else that you can think of that they can get on the right direction? I can't think of, I can't think of one book in particular. I'm sure there's some very good ones out there. Uh, I, I'm guilty that I don't review all of them. There's, you know, that would keep me busy all day. I do, do think they want to find somebody they can work with um, that can give them proper advice on strategy. Strategies are important. Working hard and smart is important. Working hard is not enough. If you're doing the wrong things, you're going to frustrate yourself and not do well. Certainly, I feel emails and phone calls from people on a daily basis saying, I need help. And I send them different files, like the 21-day fat cell cleanse is a nutrition file that I send to people with no strings attached. And if they want to follow it, great. If they don't, then all it was is a PDF file, and I'm happy to send it to them. Um, but um, that that's something that I do on a regular basis is try to educate you with videos that Dr. Serrano and I have done, give them good information. But you made a good point. The advertising landscape is pushing inexpensive, um, terrible food choices because that's where the profit centers are for many of these businesses. You're not going to find any fast food restaurants that are making money on organic foods because the whole equation shifts for them. Uh, so yes, people, it's in their face all the time, what's easy and what's convenient, uh, in terms of what to get, and unfortunately the food supply is getting worse. I think you have a small percentage of the population that's educating themselves and going a long way to making good choices, but a larger percentage is very apathetic to just doing what everybody else does. My cousin's super obese, I'm on my way there, it's socially acceptable. So let's go to the drive throughs like everybody else does. And, uh, you know, that's what I'm settling for. And instead of going to the gym, I'm going to play video games and uh, put on a happy face. Like, I like the way I look when actuality I don't, but it's socially acceptable so that I can do it. So, you know, I would say in 1950, there were a lot less obese people for different reasons. Certainly the food supply was better, but it wasn't socially acceptable to, to be obese. Um, and I think now is people are just kind of like, okay with it. And again, I'm like you, I don't belittle people or make fun of them because they're obese. I mean, that's not the right thing to do. Uh, but some of them have taken on a thought process. Well, I look like everybody else. I'm, I'm me, I'm happy with who I am. And that's what I want to do. A lot of people will say that, but that's not the truth. You know, I get phone calls pretty often people crying on the phone, you know, I don't like the way I look. You know, they send me pictures where they're smiling, this is me, but this is just, you know, a show that I put on for people when I hate my look, I hate having to climb upstairs because I feel sick all the time, and you know, and, and this and that. And people finally have to kind of put their foot down and realize they didn't get this way overnight, and they're gonna have to do a lot of work to undo it. But where there's a will, there's a way. You know, people, I've helped uh, you know, some clients, not a lot, 
get from that mega obese back to what I would call more of a normal body fat percentage takes a long time and a lot of work. Uh, but the key is not only getting yourself to that point. Would you agree that the longer that you're obese, let's say you've been obese for 15 straight years, you weigh 300 pounds for 15 straight years, that it's harder to drop that yeah. weight versus someone who was skinny for 15 years and got fat for two years? Yes, because the longer you're at a obese state, the worse your hormonal profile is going to be, the worse your digestive system is going to be, and then fat cells, you know, as we talked about, the more and more you pile in in terms of foods fried corn oil, which are like every uh, fast food joint in the U.S. and probably Canada too and other places, the worse the fat cells get collectively, the, the harder it's going to be to undo. So, yeah, you're exactly right. The longer they've been in that situation, the harder it is to burst. So you really have to, you know, balls to the wall, change your whole diet lifestyle is, like, is the way I like to call it. And I'll give you an example. In the 50s, you bring up the 50s, very few people were obese. Well, in the 50s, people only ate two or three meals a day at most. Now people eat oh. six, seven meals a day. They snack. You know, like when I was a kid growing up in school, we had lunch. That's it. We went to school yeah. and we had lunch and we didn't have breakfast or snacks. Now they tell parents to, that they're, they have a snack break, they have lunch, they have another snack break, and then they have an after school program where they bring pizza for the kids. It's like their kids are eating six, seven times a day. And it's like people believe the bullshit that the more you eat, the stronger your metabolism is. I'm not sure who came up with that bullshit, but they should be hung by their balls Okay. Every time I hear a personal trader or diet coach say that to someone, they should be hung by their balls on the spot well, well, for well, lying well, to people. Well, okay. What that person said, Steve, is actually true because there is a thermic effect of food. Every time you eat, your body has to digest that food, which is very medically metabolically demanding on the body, but you're still taking in calories. So it's not, it's not like eating is the equivalent of going on the treadmill. It's like, Yes, you burn calories in order to digest that food, but you're still digesting that food, so you're still in a caloric surplus at the end of the day. Yeah, there's some thermic effect of food that you pointed out, but it's not going to uh, take away everything you consume that depending on what you, you know, consume. It's, it's kind of kind of like if you have a credit card that gives you cash back, you yeah. get money every time you spend that spend on that credit card. But you're still right. losing money because you get like 3% back. It's the same thing with the thermic effect of food. Like, yeah, every time you eat, you're burning calories, but you're gaining more calories than you're burning. Yes. And you're also changing the hormonal profile. If you're eating six times a day, your insulin levels go up depending on what you're consuming. And if you're in a hyper uh, a hyperinsulinic state, that's not good. We know that high insulin levels is one of the uh, things that you would use to determine a risk factor for death, premature death. Um, so high insulin levels, which can come from refined food intake and eating, you know, too often and lack of exercise, not a good thing. Um, so when you take an obese person and say, well, you eat five, six times a day, no, that doesn't make sense. Um, they, their body needs time between meals to auto-regulate, do many things and keep their insulin levels in check. Um, so if somebody tells you, this is what this person told me to do, and say, well, I have a fundamental disagreement with that person and I'm not into negotiating. So if you want my advice, I'll give it to you. If you're going to half-ass it and 
buy it with somebody else, I don't do that because there's just, it doesn't work. You know, the, uh, the, the model of five or six times a day with snacks in between or whatever. No, I, I don't see that working well for a majority of people. And also adrenaline. I've done prolonged fasting. My adrenaline and blood pressure is up during my prolonged fast, not down. So if you want to make that argument that eating more often speeds up metabolism, I would counter argue that eating less often speeds up adrenaline. So you're counteracting any type of metabolism difference by when you're, when you're fasting. And that's something that people don't realize unless you actually fast. And I have blood work to prove that. And I have actual, I've done prolonged fasting and I've logged it. And I've gotten blood work and I've done everything to, to prove that that's actually true. So the whole eating more often, Trevor, the whole eating more often raises your metabolism and raises your adrenaline is false. It's actually the opposite. From, yeah, and I have yeah. data to prove that. And if, if you think I'm wrong, do it yourself and prove me wrong. Do it yourself. Scott, what are your thoughts on this? Because the literature clearly states fasting slows metabolism. I'm not saying that. I'm saying it increases adrenaline, which offsets that metabolism issue. How does that off? Adrenaline and metabolism are two separate things. Exactly. It speeds up adrenaline. If it lowers metabolism, doesn't matter because it's speeding up adrenaline. My blood pressure went up during my prolonged fast, Trevor. It didn't go down. That's the misconception. You realize, you realize adrenaline is catabolic, right? What does yeah. that have to do with what I'm, what I'm trying to explain? I'm trying to explain that it's not true that eating more often is going to, you know, cause you to burn more fat. It's just not true. If you, th that's not true. If that was true, we wouldn't have an obesity ep epidemic. That's what I'm trying to explain to you, diet average, coaches. The average person's hormones are so fucked up because they're constantly pumping out adrenaline because they're so stressed and their cortisol levels are through the roof. Adrenaline is good but you want it for like 60 to 90 minutes during your workout. And then you want to be in your parasympathetic nervous system throughout the rest of the day. Scott, do you, are you backing me up on this? Well, I, I think point does fasting help with fat loss? Yes. Why? Is it because of its impact on metabolism, impact on hormones or a combination of things or uh, helping the digestive system be more efficient? You know, I think it's a combination of factors. Yes, there is some thermic effect of food. Like, I agree with you on that. And could it be that different people, based on their genetics, their stress level, their sleep patterns, their training frequency, can respond differently to different meal frequencies? Yes, age will also play a role. And then, of course, goals. So when you say, well, you know, I did blood work individually. I saw this, this, and this. Yeah, I can give you some conclusions as to how it works for you. And that's a good thing to do. Can be expanded to the greater population? Boy, I don't know. I mean, there's a lot of individual factors there. That's a tough one. Um, but it's always a combination of factors that you have to look at. And some of them are more or less obvious than, than what you think as to why something works. Now that we're talking about insulin, what are your thoughts on metformin? I'm not an expert in the factor at all. Not don't know. I like it. But the problem with it is it will screw up your digestive flora, so it's not something you want to take every day. I'm there you sure. go. I mean, sir, take what are the consequences sure. that you have? And, you know, it, it's stimulants. Let's look at that. That's another. 
my goodness, that if I had a nickel for every time someone called me and said or emailed me, you know, I've been taking this mystery workout and then I'm so burned out other times during the day. Well, yeah, because many of them have a ton of stimulants in there. They're burning out the adrenal glands. They're screwing up the hormone cycle. So, yeah, it may have helped you have a good workout, but if many other hours during the day it screws things up, was it worth it? I would say no. I think it's causing chronic stress levels. It's responsible for increased deposition of stubborn body fat because of the increased cortisol levels during the workout, for example, or going through the roof um, and, you know, causing poor function throughout the rest of the day. You could also say muscle wasting could be uh, happening to people that are using stimulants at way too high a level all the time, which create a very uh, stressful environment. Um, so, you know, it's another example. It's like, well, it helped me have a good workout and I'm kind of addicted to it, but what is the negative effect on the other hours during the day? Is it negating my ability to grow muscle or to lose body? I would say it's bad news. Uh, if you're somebody that needs a pre-workout to work out, you have a problem. Um, it's not something that should be used regularly, in, in my opinion. Scott, this brings us to segue. We've got time for one more topic. Talk to us about overtraining due to poor program design. Now, you hear all these different numbers, like, you know, you should work out three days a week, four days a week, five days a week, six days a week. What are your opinions? When I uh, assess a new client, I'm looking at a lot of recovery factors, age, training experience, sleep, uh, their diet, uh, perhaps some other indications of what's going on with them in general. And my approach is always going to be do as little as possible in terms of volume while getting the results that you want. So you're not flirting with overtraining. I do see a lot of programs that are written by experts, and I use that in quotes, um, in that there are a lot of programs and information that circulates from trainers don't work with real clients. Everything with them is theory, and perhaps they're genetically gifted and can handle a lot of volume and have a lot of time to rest, and that works for them. But it doesn't necessarily apply to, let's say, a business person who's working 40, 50 hours a week, who's 38 years old, uh, can't handle the same volume. Uh, I monitor clients and looking at what is their improvement in terms of the weight loads they're doing, what is their overall improvement with body composition, how are they feeling the next day, and I change the volume accordingly. I don't have a magic number of how many sets that should be done per workout. I think that most people, let's say if they're trying to lose body fat, need three weight training workouts a week, somewhere around 40 minutes or less, being very efficient, and two fat-burning interval sessions per week that are 30 minutes or less. You know, that's something I found to work well. That could be for somebody who need a little bit more or a little bit less. For somebody that's trying to increase muscle mass, I think four workouts per week is more appropriate. Maybe one functional session where they can get some good muscle stimulation and also conditioning at the same time. But again, this varies for a lot of people. I also look at, you know, what supplementation do they have pre and post workout, you know, available to them as well, uh, impacting uh, the volume. But a lot of people that are, let's call into training, you know, people listening to this podcast, people that are looking at a lot of information, they're hiring coaches, a lot of them are overtrained. Yeah. They have a hard time recognizing the symptoms. They think more is better, and they're in a chronic state of overtraining, and they're not getting good results. 
they eventually start to get injuries, joint problems, muscle imbalances, uh, start to some decline in performance and low testosterone. I mean, if you want to see an equation for somebody to lower their testosterone, well, overtrain. And the testosterone to cortisol ratio is going to get way out of whack. Uh, but that's something that Dr. Serrano sees fairly often is people that come in, I'm doing this right on the diet. I got this great trainer and I'm in their 60s a week. Why are you getting better results? And often one of the easiest things to fix is the overtraining and you tell the trainer, listen, my doctor says I need to do this and reduce the volume. And in a lot of cases it works well, the trainer will cooperate, they need to find the trainer. How would one of our listeners find out if they're overtraining? Is there is is there any test they could do or, is it, or do they just have to be in tune with their, like, I don't think they need to go to the extent of doing a blood test looking at their testosterone and cortisol ratio. It's just a window of what's going on right then. Or they could do one of these, you know, saliva tests over a series of days to collect cortisol. I don't think you need to do that either. I think you need to look at what have your results been? Have they been good? Have they not been as good as you would like? Um, what are your fatigue levels, you know, the day following? Are your weight loads going up? Somewhere in the equation of weight training for people that are trying to provide health they've lost the understanding that getting stronger equates to more lean muscle mass. Um, and it's like, well, you do all these sets, I don't get stronger for weeks on end, so, but I'm doing a lot of work. Now, if you cannot incrementally increase performance of, let's say, a six-week period, I highly doubt you're gaining any muscle mass. That's just my observation. So if you're not gaining strength, something's going on, and one of the first things I would do is lower the volume. Again, I would also look at the diet, recovery, supplementation, other you know aspects as well. But let's say that's you know out of whack. I mean, I had a client I spoke to today. He's a Fortune 500 executive. He works some weeks, 80 hours. He can't work out for an hour five times a week and recover from that. That's just not going to happen. So right now he's doing three days a week in about 25 minutes, and that's what's working for him, and it will produce some result. Because that's the situation. He's not going to quit his job. Is his job is more important than training, as it should be. But at different parts of the year, his volume can be different based on the scenarios that we're dealing with. But if he gets a good result at 25 minutes three times a week, why do I need to increase it? Just for the sake of making myself look smart or giving him more value for his dollar by having longer workouts? That's a broken equation. But, you know, again, when people are, are listening to this podcast, when people are assessing a trainer, is that person producing good results for clients like you? Not like him, okay? If he's a professional bodybuilder, good for him. If you're an accountant and you're 42 years old and, you know, your objective is to improve your body composition and your quality of life, understand that you're not doing what a professional bodybuilder does. There's no connection whatsoever between what their program volume should be and yours. And if your trainer can't point to um, results he's produced for clients in your situation, that's not a good sign. Uh, you know, that's just something that I throw out there for people is as you and I exchange by email, there's all these people on Instagram with their shirts off, they're all of a sudden are experts. Well, I got news for a lot of people. The people writing the programs are not the people in the picture, okay? In some cases, I'm not saying everybody, but there is more fraud in this industry than perhaps anything else that I've ever seen. And I come across a lot of these people because when I get new clients, they show me programs they've gotten from other people. And I look at them, I'm like, this is awful. And here's another thing. 
a lot of these trainers give the same program to, to people, no matter what their situation, it's just copy paste and charge X amount for it. Well, when I see, you know, programs coming from certain people and I can match them up and they're almost identical to the same person, that wasn't very customized. Now, again, some of them may be sold as generic. You know, I don't know. I don't have the time or really care to investigate a lot of these people. But I'll give you one story to illustrate this point. Years ago, I went to a conference and I had been reading articles by a certain person talking about how he was 6% body fat, how he was ripped, and he was published by a pretty reputable online magazine. And I knew he was speaking at this conference and I went to see him and he was in absolutely nothing close to good condition. Uh, he, he had what appeared to be some physical ailments, uh, you know, just didn't look like a guy that trained at all. Um, yet he's up there presenting and all this shit he didn't understand. And he himself was not in the condition he put to be. Yet that's what led him to get a lot of clients. And I said to myself, well, maybe not all things are what they're supposed to be. And this is about 20 years ago. Um, so look, when you assess somebody and look at them, does it necessarily reveal all the information they have available that can help you? No, but you should really focus on what results are they producing for people that are in situations like yours and investigate a little bit more in terms of what you're getting. Steve, do you have anything to add before I close up the show? Well, I just want to say it's amazing, you know, having this guest on because, um, you know, if you guys listen to our prior podcast, there's a lot of cookie cutter information being put out. And this guest actually is giving you logical information that's non cookie cutter. But if you really think about this, what he's been saying in this podcast, it's logic, it's human evolution, it's understanding the way the human body works, and it makes perfect sense. And it's something that we need more of. It's a breath of fresh, fresh air for me to hear stuff like this, because this is stuff that I've learned the past 20 years, and I've listened to the bullshit, okay? Which is, like you said, 99% of the shit out there is bullshit. You turn on the TV, it's bullshit. You read on forums, it's bullshit. It's all cookie cutter shit. So this is really good. I hope you guys really listen to this guest, and I really hope you look at his information, his websites and stuff, and really suck up the information because this is this is good shit. What Scott did a really good job of is getting people to get their head out of their ass. And I mean, I see this happen all the time is because the problem is we live in a society now where there's so much information, right? So you get this young kid, let's say he's in his first year of college, he gets a free gym membership, university gym, so he's like, okay, I'm gonna start weight training, I'm gonna get jacked. He's on bodybuilding.com, he downloads some six day per week, periodized pyramid triple drop set workout program this guy has never even lifted weights before he he, he, right he had to watch a youtube video how to squat to even squat yet he's doing squat supersets with triple drop sets with pre-fatiguing the, the quadricep and 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 then so he does this program for six months and then he emails me and i'm like dude your program should be like five sets of squats five reps learn how to squat before you actually complicate things you shouldn't be doing these fancy on your tiptoes sissy squats like and, and that's what i love scott is you're, you're telling people like think big picture with all this stuff when when i uh, deal with a client from a distance very rarely are they squatting and doing it uh very well when you know i kind of come into contact with them so while the squats are a great exercise, only if they're done correctly. 
Um, so in most cases, I won't even include that in a program for somebody by a distance until I know that they're strong enough to do it well. But to your point, yes, a lot of the free download type programs, there's an agenda with them. They want people training very often so they can use supplementation very often so they can sell more of that. Um, and that's part, you know, of the agenda. You also have a lot of influencers in the industry who tolerate high volume because, you know, they're doing illegal things. While the end consumer who's downloading that thing is not doing those same illegal things, then it's not an apples to apples um, situation. So it's unfortunate that um, people are downloading something that they think is appropriate for them, but it completely isn't. I agree with you. It's a quality over quantity approach, especially as a beginner, you need to build a strong foundation. But, uh, you know, a lot of free programs people get at or they're buying ones that are generic. They're not very well designed. The ones that another, another problem, Scott, is that with the Instagram society we live in is that people want these fancy, hardcore sounding programs, right? If, they're, if, if you're on bodybuilding.com and there's beginner learn how to weight train program. No one's going to click it because it sounds like it sounds like it's for pussies, but if there's some hardcore muscle confusion, P90X, triple drop set, you're like, yeah, this is hardcore. This is sick. I'm going to click. Right? It's kind of like, it's kind of like if I hired you for a program and I'm just an 18 year old kid and you sent it back to me and it was like Monday, Wednesday, Friday, deadlifts, squats, bench press, bent over rows, pull-ups, five sets of five. If you just sent me that, I'd be like, I got screwed. This guy ripped me off. But if you sent me some super complicated, you know, week one, week two, week three, you're cycling the rep ranges, and this is like, this is the shock week. This is like, I'd be like, whoa, this is this. Okay, this guy knows what he's talking about. I think you're right. People feel that they need to get something very exotic. Uh, when in actuality, they need something simple. You know, when I do programs, there's a lot of different factors that, you know, that I manipulate. But Sometimes I'll say, shouldn't I be doing more? And then I get in the conversation to add about how much volume needed. But one of the areas where you have to teach clients uh, or differentiate your thinking is what I consider a highly intense workout in terms of effort and what they consider a highly intense workout are two widely different things. Um, you know, and when I get to see clients and we do a training session and where I tell them, this weight load, you're coasting. You know, you kind of accept the fact that you're not going to work hard and you start to increase the weight incrementally, uh, teach them how to use their strip sets or teach them how to push through some discomfort while still maintaining proper form. Then they understand why I assign fewer sets because the intensity that I want is much greater than what they're accustomed to. But a lot of people want to do more sets to kind of compensate for them not putting in you know, a lot of effort so they can get away with it, you know. By the end of the session, you know, you should be pretty well calibrated to say, I put in a great effort, now it's time to turn um, to recovery. So those are important things to communicate with clients as to what you're trying to get across. But you are fighting an Instagram, you know, there's nothing wrong with Instagram. You're fighting a snippet type of society. People see these very small bits of information, not the big picture. They think it all applies to them and they all run with it and, you know, it's a trade -off. Scott, where can our listeners find out more about you and read some of your articles? Infinityfitness.com. So it's I-N-F-I-N-I-T-Y fitness.com. And I'll tell you, you know, everything's free on the website in terms of our video library. 
our articles all have videos from Dr. Serrano and I. We have a lot of great information that's completely free. And our videos are on a new system now that downloads very, very quickly. I mean, on the phone, the tablet, the computer, uh, very, very fast. I mean, just did that recently, put a lot of money and time and effort into it. And we sent out a newsletter one month. We put out our opinions. Uh, we put out what we see working well based on, you know, working with clients, Dr. Schwartz's patients. You know, I'm working with many clients, sometimes I'm working with his patients as well. And we put it out there for what we think works very well for people. And uh, we're also, I'm very accessible, you know, by email. I'm, you know, I'm open to interacting with you know, most people and I enjoy doing that and referring to the information they would like. So I'm very easily accessible. You can email me, Scott at infinityfitness.com anytime. I respond to all my emails, believe it or not. For our listeners, I'll have Scott's email and his website in the show notes. If you want to get a hold of him, you can just look in the show notes. Scott, I really appreciate you doing this interview. For your host, Trevor Kuritsen, for my co-host, Steve Smee, and for our special guest, Scott Mendelson of Infinity Fitness, this has been another episode of Evolutionary Radio. Live your life, look good doing it. Thanks for listening.